we're we're going through the Old Testament, and we have made it uh, a good ways through so far. We're in the book of Second Samuel, and a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to. I sent out the um, the um, guide, the participant guide, earlier today at about. It was a little late. It's about four o'clock. Uh, sometimes it takes me a little longer to prepare than normal, but um, but it was about four o'clock that I sent it out. I hope you were able to get that and print it off, or at least have it in front of you if, in some way, even if it's digital. That's fine too. Um, but uh, I want to draw your attention to the top of it, and one of the things that I'm going to uh, start implementing a little bit more as we uh, because it's going to be important uh, in the near future is uh, this little timeline up here at the top. And so this week, the timeline is not nearly as important as it will be in the coming weeks. And my plan next week is to talk more about the chronology of David's, uh, the scenes that we have in the Bible about David um, and helping us understand some of the clues that the Bible is giving to us about the chronology of David's life. And so um, I, I want to include that uh I'll, we'll pay a little bit more attention to it next week. But one of the things that I wanted to draw your attention to with it this week is just where in history David is situated as far as years go. So we've got Saul that you'll remember was um, all the way, it took the reins of the kingdom back in 1051 BC. And then um, shortly uh, he reigned for um, not a short time. He reigned for 40 years. And in about two, uh, about ten eleven uh, BC, David takes the throne. Now David is anointed a good many years before that. We think it's rough, it's hard to tell, but somewhere around ten years before that, David is anointed. And but it's not until ten eleven that he takes the throne. And um, there is a period of time when he actually he takes the throne. Saul is dead. He is king. And he is king alone, but he doesn't yet have all of the participation from the surrounding uh, people that, he, like he does from Judah. The nation of Judah is bought into David for the most part, it seems, but the rest of the nation is coming in piecemeal to him. And we hear in 2 Samuel 2 8 to 11 that Ishbosheth, who is Saul's remaining heir, is, um, is, uh, uh, appointed to the throne, and he reigns for two years, while David is reigning in Hebron for seven years. So that means probably that there's about a, a five-year period, roughly, where David is on the throne in Judah. Not everybody is bought into his kingship, and then at the end of that five-year mark, Ishbosheth is appointed to the to the throne. And reigns for a couple of years before he is assassinated while he takes an afternoon nap in 1004. And then David, right after that, it seems like, gains the attention of the rest of the nation. And they, they pretty much all submit to his leadership at that point in 1004. And so from that moment on, David in about 1004 moves to Jerusalem and he moves the capital to Jerusalem. And... Um, this is a, obviously a really important step of taking the capital from Hebron all the way up to Jerusalem. And we talked about a lot of reasons last week why that would be the case. And at about this time in 2 Samuel's uh, history, here comes the book of 1 Chronicles. And 1 Chronicles starts paralleling a little bit 
of 2 Samuel, in fact, quite a bit of 2 Samuel. But what you're going to find in 1 Chronicles is 1 Chronicles bent, the, the author of, well, both Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is more uh, bent on, on helping us understand how the kingship also is a priesthood and, and, and really helping us see the significance of David being both king and priest. And so there's times where the chronicler leaves out some stories that are well hashed. It becomes very obvious that the chronicler has the book of Second Samuel in his, or the book of Samuel in his in his possession, and is is using some of its history to kind of, you know, keep us up with what's happening, but then also provide his own details, and um, and so that's where that's how Chronicles and Samuel fits together. So Second Samuel, David's story, and then Chronicles is going to parallel that but give more of the priestly side of the account. And Chronicles is written after exile, or at least close after exile. And so we know that because there's some details about the exile in Chronicles. And so um, so he, he comes along a lot later and writing the story a lot later, but but um, is that's his his take on it. He's trying to record some different uh, issues. So Ishbosheth, then going back to David's story, Ishbosheth dies, is, is assassinated. David becomes king overall, and he moves the capital Judah from Hebron, and all of the people claim him as their kinsman. And David is facing up to this reality that he that he's got to relocate his capital shortly after his coronation moves his capital up to Israel. Now, the problem was at Israel. The Jebusites were there and had possession of the city of Jerusalem in the midst of a bunch of Jews, really the tribe of Benjamin, sort of in the tribe of Benjamin's territory and kind of really close to Judah's territory. But as he moves into Jerusalem, um, the Jebusites are there, but he pretty much makes quick work of the Jebusites, or at least the author doesn't give us many details about it. So it makes it look like he gives a pretty quick, pretty quick work. And, um, we what we talked about last week was that David began fortifying the city. So he moves into Jerusalem and begins to, they take possession of a lot of the Jebusite places and things like this. And then uh, David begins to fortify the city. And there was something that I said that we, we saw in second Samuel um, five, nine, everybody sees that slide. I'm, I'm taking it. Shannon, thumbs up. Okay, good. All right. Um, you're the, one of the few that I can see on the screen. So, um, but so in second Samuel five, nine, it says, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And I had a good, good question last week um, from Sean Mobs, I think, which was what it was a millow. And I gave kind of a short abbreviated answer because there wasn't you know, I, I couldn't demonstrate it as well as I wanted to. It's a it's a fortified place in and, and close to the city, but basically the millow is a pad. Uh, if you can imagine in your head, imagine a steep decline in a hill, and you build a retaining wall up that hill, and then what you would do with the then is is fill in that gap that's behind the retaining wall where the hill is, right? you would fill in that gap with dirt. And so that pad that's now created at the top of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, the wall, the retaining wall is called a millow. And so it's the millow though functions like a, 
a fortified place in the city because it's a big stone wall that someone would have to climb if they were going to get in. And, um, and so you have this construction where you've got this um, uh, section of the city that's, that's elevated and it creates this sort of platform and uh, where you've got a lot of walls around it and that, that's called the millow. And then at the very top, so the pad is called the millow. And then on the very top of that would sit like a house or some sort of, um, you know, sh- some sort of structure, not quite a castle, but like some sort of a, a place where you could, uh, hi- you could hide people or you could put people in. They would, they would live there. And that's called the Beth millow. And so you'll see that every once in a while in the Old Testament, Beth millow. Beth just means house. So when you see Bethlehem, uh, lechem is bread. So Bethlehem means house of bread. Um, and so, you, but Beth is just the word for house. And so you have a Beth millow, which means it's the house that sits on top of the millow. And so the, the wall that the Jebusites built is actually in Jerusalem. And you can see it. This is it. Um, it's so some parts of this wall are original to David, uh, that date as far back as David. And some of the parts of the wall are, are newer. And when I say newer, I'm still talking about like 400 BC, but, uh, you know, relatively newer. And then, so you've got, uh, you've got that, that wall, but that's kind of what it looks like. You can see up at the top. I don't have a pointer or anything like that. But you can see up at the top, you got all these over on the left, you have all these st- this stairwell and this railing that leads all the way up to the top of that little pad. That would be the millow. And then you see these little houses up here. I mean, these aren't old houses. These are newer, but um, but that would be like a Beth millow. OK, um, and the house on top of it. So this is from the base of it. Looking up, you can kind of see the pitch and the terrace of it and how someone would kind of especially back in those days, have to climb over the wall just to get up there. Well, you climbing up the wall uh, makes you sort of an easy target with the people at the top. And so you can see kind of a map of how that, that's the, this is this structure drawn out, um, what parts are belong to what era. And so you've got some of these going back to 1000 BC. If you keep in track of your timeline over there, that's right about the time of David, this little step structure here. And then down at the bottom right-hand corner, the step structure there is about the time of David as well. So hopefully that kind of gives you a little bit better picture of what is, what, what's happening with the, uh, the Milo and what David is doing. So David moves into Jerusalem and he begins fortifying all the structures and making, making them able to withstand war. So he immediately sees this place as not only a capital, but a, place, a base of operations, essentially, that he anticipates, obviously, at some point, enemies are going to come after him and uh, attempt to maybe take Jerusalem from him or at least fight him there. And we're going to see that tonight. And so we open the book of 2 Samuel uh, in chapter 5. We're going to take the second half of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6 tonight. So uh, you got second, uh, second Samuel five seventeen is where we're going to start. And um, I'm just going to read, um, read through that uh, real quick, 15, uh, 17 to 25. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired 
of the Lord. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim, which basically means the Lord breaks through. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. All right. Now, so... You'll, you, you're noticing, you're seeing, hopefully, that in, the, in David's battle with the, the Philistines, he consults the Lord two times during this battle. So the Philistines come to do battle with him. They meet him on the battlefield, and David goes out to meet them. And before he does, two times he consults the Philistines. That's actually really important for a, for a reason that we'll get to in just a moment because of something that he didn't do previously. You'll remember that I had said last week, if you, if you were part of this last week, that um, in, the, in chapters 5 to 8 of 2 Samuel, you're going to see this repeating pattern over and over again where David is going to go to battle and then he's going to build a house and then he's going to go to battle and then he's going to build a house and then he's going to go to battle again and he's going to build a house again. Three times, David goes to battle, followed by him building a house. And so him consulting the Lord here is actually really a really big deal, which we'll, we'll talk about in just a second. But he twice consults the Lord. He goes and the Lord says, you got it. So you're, you're good. Go. I'm going to give them into your hand. And so David goes out to the battlefield to fight the Philistines. And what happens? Well, sure enough, the Philistines run. But one important detail that the author gives to us is that the Philistines ran off and they left their idols behind. And what you, you don't see in English, unfortunately, and I had a long conversation with people about knowing Hebrew and, and Greek a while back, and you know who you are in this, but, <laughs> but, um, but one of the things that doesn't come across in the English is a, a, a pun that is there in the Hebrew. And so the, the verb abandoned, and I, so I'm just going to give it to you here, the verb for abandoned, they left their idols, they abandoned their idols, is Azab. And the word for idol is Atzab. So they Azab their Atzab. All right. So you can hear the the pun in the in what he's saying. But the pun is on the two words abandonment and idol. And so what that helps us to understand is that the author's making a really important point, not just a, a historical fact that they ran off and they left their idols. But he's actually making a pun about what idol worship really is. Uh, idol worship, it results in the idol abandoning you or you having to run off without your God because it actually provides you 
essentially no help on the battlefield. And, and this is a really big deal. Think about, you know, you had to go back, go back, you know, 3,000 years. We're talking your hand-to-hand combat and a, a, a military victory is considered a defeat of that person's gods. So you go onto the battlefield, you beat somebody, you, your God is stronger than their God. Your God gives you power. And when you went out on the battlefield, their God is supposed to give them power. And obviously their God is inferior to your God. We saw that even back in first Samuel, when the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines and they took the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm, thinking it was going to give them a victory. The Philistines whooped them and took the Ark of the Covenant back. And, and so they, they put the Ark of the Covenant, you remember where? In the Philistine temple. And they said, because basically that was a way of saying, our God, Dagon, has defeated your God. And of course, the next morning they wake up and Dagon is falling on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And eventually they all break out in tumors and all kinds of other things that they didn't anticipate at the beginning. But the point is that they that it's a defeat of the God. And so when the author says this, he's making a pun with the intent on you understanding something deeply theological about idol worship, that it results in military loss because that God is not there for you and abandons you. And at the end, you're forced to abandon your God too, because it pales by comparison to the God of Israel. So it's, it's actually, it's a really important moment in the story. Now, the second time, uh, David also in, uh, tells the, the, you know, ask the Lord if, if it's okay, if he goes. And of course you see in the story, he's told to go around the back side of them. And the Lord gives him all of these kind of weird instructions about walking on the treetops and all this kind of stuff, marching on the treetops. And, uh, and so, but what is clear in the story is that David is to wait for Yahweh to go before him. And so what, ha- what he's being told is that I'm gonna, you need to go around the backside of them and you need to wait by the balsam trees. And when you hear marching on the top of the balsam trees, then you know that I've gone before you. So he says, he says in verse 24, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. And why? For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So David is essentially listening for the angels of, of, of Yahweh, the, the, the host of Yahweh's army marching. And so God is essentially telling him, I'm going to open your ears so that you hear the marching of the angels going onto the battlefield before you. And when you hear that, that's your cue. That's when you're going to go and, and you're going to, uh, you're going to take over the, the Philistines. That's when I've given them into your hand. And so you're going to wait for that moment, uh, to go. And so, um, this, this just to help put this all on a map for you, where the places we're talking about here, um, all of this happens around right there in the middle of the map, but all Perizim, sorry about the blurriness of the map, but, um, uh, if it is blurry for you at all, but, um, Baal Perazim is right there in the middle and you see, uh, underneath Baal Perazim is Valley of Rephaim and the Valley of Rephaim stretches pretty much across the promised land, uh, east to west. Okay. Underneath the city of Jerusalem. 
And it's a really fertile place uh, for, for growing things and everything. It's a really important, important area. But, but um, they meet them there on the battlefield. Well, the first time uh, David marches out on the battlefield, the second time God says, I don't want you to go up. Uh, to them. I want you to go around the backside of them. And so the green line is kind of showing David going around the backside of them through the valley and up behind them and catching them by surprise. Um, but this is the main area. And then uh, Gezer is where they, they actually flee to. So Gath is where they come from. And then Gezer is where they flee to. Um, so if that helps kind of put it on the map there for you, just hey, a Michael. few miles outside of, of Jerusalem. Blake, go ahead. Yes. So Jeff asked the question about consulting of the Lord. What did this look like? How, how did he consult the Lord? Was, was there just the bowing of his head and praying or was more involved a priest, prophet, altar, etc.? cetera? Um, so in this particular instance, we're not told. However, um, we are told of David consulting the Lord a couple of times in the book of, of 1 Samuel. And what that looks like is David actually grabbing the ephod. An ephod is a priestly garment, and it's got stones up and down the, the priestly garment. And there is a, a, a black and white stone call, called the, you'll may, you may hear it called the, uh, the Urim and Thummim, uh, black and white stones. And essentially, the priest wearing the ephod would take those stones and really ask the Lord yes or no questions and throw the stones, we presume, it, something like that. It would be something like throwing dice, essentially. And based on the way the stones landed would tell him the Lord's answer to yes or no. So likely what you're getting here is probably David wearing the ephod, which he's actually going to uh, don here in next week when, he, when the Ark of the Covenant comes back into Jerusalem. But uh, he has the ephod because he is playing the role many times of king and priest. And he would ask those questions and get yes or no answers. I would expect that's probably what David does in order to get the, the results from the Lord. Um, it certainly wouldn't be beyond the pale for the Lord to just speak and answer him. But I, I, I seriously doubt that's the case, namely because we're not really told that that's the case here. Um, and then much later, well, actually, in, in the coming weeks, we're going to see Nathan the prophet introduced, uh, who will have the words of God in his mouth and will be able to speak on God's behalf. So that's another way in which the king receives word from the Lord. Um, so good question, but that that's probably what's going on there is how he's getting how he's divining that answer. And and Dr. Maxwell is asking if David acquired the ephod from Samuel. Um. No, there is, and, and uh, David, you would ask this. Uh, <laughs> but there is a there is a, a place going back. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, Saul killed all the priests, and then uh, he ran to David, and he got the ephod from him. Uh, the assumption would then be that uh, he still has it from him, or that there's some sort of close relationship with the priesthood that's there here. Other questions? Any other questions, Blake? All I see is a number four flashing, so that's all I know. Uh, no, there's there's no, no further questions that I see. Okay. All right, good deal. Um, so uh, here, here's David. Now, this is a balsam tree. I only put that in there because I had somebody ask me, 
about a tree one time when I did this. And they were like, what is that tree? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so I had to do some research on a balsam tree, what it looked like. But for what it's worth, David and his men appear to be hiding behind these trees. And, uh, and I think the balsam tree is of no real consequence. It's just that they happen to be in that location uh, where David was going to be. But that's what one looks like. So now you know. Um, not all that attractive of a tree. Um, all right. So uh, David is consulting the Lord uh, twice. And the Lord strikes down the Philistines. Uh, I put in the same slide again, I think. Um, so, okay. These are the, apparently the first battles that take place after the death of Saul with the, with the Philistines. There is some question, and we're going to get a little bit to this next week. There is some question as to when in David's life this actually happened. Um, what you'll find in the Bible is that biblical authors are not really that interested in chronology, not nearly as much as we are. Uh, it just isn't that... Um, just it isn't really that important to them and what is more important for them is that they take all of the the things the events that took place in David's life and arrange them theologically not so much that you understand what happened to David but more that you understand the theological issues going on with the nation of Israel and what so that you understand more about who God is in the, in this whole picture. And so next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the chronology of David's life and how some of this, it, it seems is, is shaking out at least maybe in the biblical text and help us kind of understand where some of these things happen. For instance, we know that, that David builds his house actually a lot later in his, in his kingship, because one of the Kings up North from Tyre actually sends him materials to build his house. And that King didn't even take the throne until much later in David's kingship. So we know that that took place later, but the author doesn't really care that it took place later. He wants you to know that it, it follows with David conquering Jerusalem and that there's, there's, uh, there's this kind of pattern of defeating a uh, military victory followed by house building, uh, building the kingdom of God. And so uh, but this seems like to be the first battles with the Philistines. And there's some question at, at, that this may have actually been while David was still at Hebron. We're, we're not sure, but um, we'll talk more, a little bit more about that uh, next week. But that we do know that this, this is the first battle with the Philistines that happened after the death of Saul. And uh, it seems as though that the Philistines were either uh, content to have David down in Hebron and content with him battling against Saul and wanted to, you know, uh, allow them to continue to fight. And once David started taking control of Israel, they thought this is not good. This is, doesn't end well for us. Or it was after the death of Ishbosheth that they said, look, um, when, uh, when Ishbosheth died and David gained control of all of Israel, then uh, that does not, that spells doom for us Philistines. And so now we've got to go do battle to make sure we can be a thorn in, in the side of David and potentially during this time of transition, put him under our thumb so that he kind of listens to us or so that we can defeat him. And it doesn't turn out all that well uh, for the Philistines. But interestingly though, there is the battle that happens. And in this instance, whereas last time he did not consult the Lord, this time he does inquire of the Lord and the Lord gives him the victory. And not only that, 
But he is told, especially in the second battle, you need to wait so that the armies of the Lord can go first. This pattern of David waiting and the armies of the Lord coming in and fighting in front of him is the same thing that happened to Joshua when Joshua is moving into the into the new territory, into the promised land and taking over. <clears throat> the Lord goes before him and tells him, I'm going to go before you and I'm going to fight for you. So what we see is that what we, we talked about last week of David sort of taking on this role of the new Joshua and conquering foes that were supposed to be conquered long ago that were, were, were not conquered, um, that David is now doing. But what we also see is just like Joshua, the Lord is going before him and fighting his battles for him. But what does that mean? Last time, did the Lord go fight before him? Well, all the text says is that David went and he fought and he won. And he built himself a house. He was handsomely rewarded for his efforts, if you will. This time, who is the one that did the fighting? The Lord did the fighting. So who's the one that gets the house? What do we see in chapter six? But the Lord is going to be built a house for the fighting that he did, uh, essentially. At least that's sort of the pattern that's being established. Not to mean that the Lord wasn't with David when he went and fought, but that's kind of the, the way they're ordered is to help you see David fights, he, is, he, he fights for the Lord and does the work that Joshua was given to do, the work of God's kingdom, and he is, he is rewarded for his obedience. Um, God goes and does, does the work, and, and what happens then is worship is constituted here in uh, Israel's capital in Jerusalem. And so the house is, is going to be built. Now, um, so uh, this is basically finishing what I just told you. When David fought the Philistines, uh, the Lord uh, not only directed David to fight, but also marched before David. Um, and so here's what we see is that David then immediately goes and begins building a house for Yahweh. Um, and this may have actually been later on in David's, David's uh, tenure as king. And there's pretty good evidence for that. But we'll talk again more about that next week. And so uh, we have at the end of chapter five, David has defeated the Philistines, the mighty Philistines, the, the famous foe of Israel. David has defeated them and driven them out by the Lord's doing. The Lord has gone before him and driven them out and, and, and uh, defeated the Philistines. And, the, and they're sort of settled on what happens next. Uh, the, ho the house of the Lord needs to be built. Uh, a tabernacle of the Lord needs to be built. And so David aims to do that now. We get to this thing of the ark. I don't know if there's a question, Blake, is there? I don't know if you're still with us. Yes. Yes. The question is uh, from Shannon, what does a house for the Lord look like? Yeah. In this case, it's going to be pretty much a tabernacle. Um, David, we find out, actually wants to build the Lord a temple and make it big and ornate. Uh, he is not granted that permission because there's too much blood on his hands. And so that's going to be given to his son, Solomon. So for David, it's going to be more or less a large tent that, uh, that pretty much resembles the tabernacle. That's going to be, uh, Mo like Moses tabernacle traveling through the wilderness. Um, and then, uh, with, with the Ark of the covenant inside, which we're going to see in just a minute. And then Solomon's is going to be much more ornate and is going to be calling back to the Garden of Eden in a lot of things. And, and so there's, there's a lot of imagery in the, in the temple that's going to be built when Solomon actually built it. 
very ornate, lots of gold. Yeah. Blake, is there anything else? Nope. Okay. You do. Um, so what does David got to do? Well, he's got to go get an ark. All right. Now, do you remember where the ark last was? Well, you probably won't because it's all the way back in first Samuel chapter seven was the last time we even saw it. So, uh, back in, in first, uh, Samuel seven, one, we saw that they left the ark at Kiriath Jerem, which is, uh, in the area of Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, David has to go and he has to take the ark from Kiriath Jerem all the way down to Jerusalem, where he's going to place this ark in a tabernacle, which is just, I guess, to his mind, pretty temporary until he can try to get around to building uh, a bigger house temple uh, for the Lord to dwell in. But this this Ark of the Covenant is very important. And you you know why, I think, most of you probably know why. At the top of the, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant sits what is called the mercy seat, where essentially the way the Jews understood that, or the way they phrased it was where the presence of the Lord was. Um, and what, what the way they, they later articulated that was, uh, as the temple is built, that God's throne is in the heavens where he sits on his throne and his feet uh, rest on the top of the mercy seat in the, the, the uh, tabernacle or the, the temple. And so this is uh, the Ark of the Covenant. If you're going to have a tabernacle or a temple with the Lord's presence in it, then it's going to have to be with the Ark of the Covenant there because the Lord dwells there on the mercy seat of, of the, and if you're going to do any significant worship there, you've got to have the Ark of the Covenant there. And so David has to go get it. Now, the way that you transport uh, the Ark of the Covenant is really tricky, as we're about to find out, uh, <laughs> that when you transport the, the Ark of the Covenant, there were essentially three rules that we're going to get to in, ju in just a little bit. I think I'm going to actually spell them out for you in just a minute. Uh, if I, if I see where that is, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that was important for the carrying of the Ark of the Covenant is it had to be done by the Kohathites. There was a particular group of people that were appointed to do the carrying. So you have Levi, you'll remember he was, uh, his group, his clan, his tribe, his family were the priests, but uh, amongst his family, you had a lot of uh, a lot of different responsibilities that were divided off in amongst the priesthood, and the Kohathites were the ones that were responsible for transporting the the Ark of the Covenant. They were the ones that were given the job of not only taking the Ark of the Covenant, but also the temple furniture, the tabernacle furniture, um, the relics, as it were, Ark of the Covenant uh, table, uh, all, all the you know, the important furniture in the tabernacle was to be transported by the Kohathites. So we get this, this hap, what happened basically in, in second uh, Samuel chapter six, verses one to 11. I'm going to read now, David, it says, David again, gathered all the, the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there, the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God 
on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now let's look at verse five. This is where things turn. Uh-oh. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they, and, they came, uh, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his, of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Okay, well, this is really bad. Uh, so <laughs> we see what's very clear and what we have to, what we have to kind of keep in our mind is that the presence of God, Yahweh's presence is on the ark. So uh, the ark of the covenant, that is not the boat. Uh, the, <laughs> so is on the ark of the covenant. His presence is there. And so much so that we see several times in, uh, in Scripture that Yahweh's presence and the Ark of the Covenant are not really separated at all. In fact, when Moses and Aaron and Israel would lead out the, 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 uh, the uh, Ark and they would advance, they would address the Ark as if they were addressing the Lord. Advance, O Lord! And when the ark was put down and they would, you know, get to their next camping spot, they would say, return, O Lord, to your spot. I mean, they're talking to the ark. Um, they see the ark as the, the physical presence of God. That's different than saying the ark is the image of God. That's, it's not. It's that Yahweh's presence is on the ark. And so to, you appear as though you're addressing the ark. And in reality, they're addressing um, the, the Lord who is, who is on it. Now, um, so Yahweh had given Moses and Aaron some very specific instructions about the Ark of the Covenant, things they were to do and things that they were not to do. The Kohathites, <clears throat> excuse me, the Kohathites were the only ones able to carry it, but they had very specific instructions about how they would do that. And there were, th there were essentially three rules that they were given. One was they could not touch it. The second was they could not look at it. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. They couldn't touch it. They couldn't look at it. And they must carry it lest they die. All right. Now, most of you are probably going to ask the question, how do you carry something without looking at it? <laughs> right? um, and that's a good question. Actually, there's provisions for that too. Aaron and his sons were to go into the tabernacle they were to take the, the, the uh, veil and they were, to, they were to take the veil and drape it over the Ark of the Covenant. Now, how are you supposed to carry it if you can't touch it? So that, that would prevent you from looking at it. You would see the, the outline of it in the cloth, but, but you wouldn't see it. Um, so you couldn't look at it. Then how are you going to carry it if you can't touch it? They had rings on the side of the, of the Ark and they would run poles through the Ark of the Covenant. And they would, the Kohathites would be on all ends and they would pick up the poles and they would carry it on their shoulder as they walked out. And so it would be covered. Nobody could look at it and they would be carrying it and they were never, ever, ever to touch it. 
Now you can see in uh, the verses that I've got listed there in your handout is numbers four, four to six, 15, 17 to 20, and then seven, nine. You can look those up later, but essentially all of them are basically going to tell you exactly what I just told you. Now, what do you notice? There's three rules. What do you notice about the story with Uzzah? Well, they don't, they're not carrying it. They've got it on an ox cart. Um, and apparently it's a new ox cart. They probably felt like, well, at least if we're not going to carry it, let's give him a new one. All right. But they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant essentially like they found it at a pawn shop and they're putting it on the back of this cart and walking all the way down. The second is, do you think that they have it covered? Well, they don't have a veil to cover it with. So do you think that they walked up and had, and even if they do have it covered, do you think one of the priests of Aaron actually was the one that actually went went and covered it? No, these are the guys that are there. They covered it. So uh, if they covered it at all. So in all likelihood, this thing is exposed. It's on the back of an ox cart and not being carried. And so there's already two strikes against them, all right? And they're already not listening to the Lord's instructions all the way back in the book of Numbers. Instructions that they knew well. These are people as members of the Kohathite family that are going to be told this from the beginning. I mean, if you have one job to do and your family's whole job is this, well, you're going to be told from the get-go, this is how you do it. And you're going to be instructed on how to do this job because it's fundamental to our family that you're able to carry out this task. There's no doubt. They know all the rules and they broke all the rules. And there's further evidence as to the fact that they knew they broke the rules uh, when Uzzah was struck dead. But point is, the, the ox cart, the ox stumbles, the ox cart stops, starts to wobble. Uzzah reaches out his hand because he thinks to himself, well, Basically, if, if I can you know, put my hand on it, stabilize it, I can keep it from, from falling. So he reaches out and he touches it, and oh, uh, poor Uzzah struck out, all right? <laughs> Basically was, was what happened. Third strike, he's gone. The Lord strikes him dead. Now, this sends David into a panic. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6 uh, of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 6, 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of, of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, Obed-Edom is a member of the Levite. So he's a priest. And so David's like, well, it's it's bound to be safe with you. So let's let's put it in your house. Because if I bring this thing into my city, the Lord's going to kill me like he did Uzzah. Uh, And so I don't want to have that happen. So what David says, though, is that the Lord broke out against uh, against him. Yahweh may break out uh, uh, against me. I want you to look at two things, though, that 
the author is actually making a point to us, a theological point here to us in the text. You'll see 2 Samuel 6, 8, where David became angry because Yahweh had broken out uh, within, out, this, is, this is a literal translation, translation straight from the Hebrew, word for word. Now, David became angry because Yahweh had broken out with an outbreak against Uzzah, so that the place is called outbreak of Uzzah. You notice some very important words there, all right? Break out, outbreak, all right? All the same word, okay, uh, or all the same root. Now, look at, go back to 2 Samuel 5, 20, this was when David fought the Philistines. He says, uh, David, and David came to the Lord of outbreakings, and David struck them down there. And then, uh, then he said, Yahweh has broken through my enemies before me like an outbreaking of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Lord of outbreakings. So David uses the same word there to describe what God has done against the Philistines. You can see why David is having a problem. What just happened to the Philistines that the Lord had done to the Philistines, now it seems that the Lord is doing to the Israelites. That's a huge problem. David is, is now seeing that God's, God's capable of doing the same thing to me that he was doing to the, to the Philistines. That's madness. And so the fear is that Yahweh is going to break out against the Philistines uh, or, or Israel. He can break out against either one. This God that we're serving cannot be tamed. He can break out against anybody. He can judge anybody for anything. And what we see is that, yeah, that actually is true. That God's lethal holiness levels both pagan and churchmen alike. People that belong that, that go to church and that are that are responsible, moral, upright people, as well as pagans. It seems that what God is most adamant about is your sin and punishing it. It doesn't matter who that comes from. That sin is punished. And sin has to be punished. And, uh, and so if, if the Korathites, or the, the, yeah, the Kohathites, decide they're not going to obey the Lord, then he's going to punish their sin. And if the Philistines, who by definition don't obey the Lord, he's going to punish them too. Because his holiness is lethal level. It's weapons grade holiness. Let's put it that way. All right. Uh, Blake, are there any questions about that? Uh, yeah, we got a question from a while back. Uh, Jeff Bell asked, and I quote, if the blood that was on David's hands was there because of obedience to the Lord's commands, why did that bar him from building the temple? Does violence in general taint a person's innocence in God's eyes, no matter the reason? Uh, I love Jeff Bell's questions. Um, uh, the building of the temple, the not being able to build the temple, uh, at least as far as I know, was not a punishment to David. So it wasn't as though God was saying, uh, you, you are being punished for not obeying me. It's uh, him saying, I want Solomon to build my temple. Um, and we'll, we can talk a little bit more about that as we get closer to that. But I think, I think there's probably some theological things going on as well. Um, death is a part of the fall. And 
having blood on your hands and the shedding of blood we see in the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter nine. Um, and so here you have a new Adam establishing God's wanting to establish essentially God's garden with blood on his hands, which is a sign of the fall. And it's not as though David is being punished because he, he had to do that. Uh, you're right. He was obeying the Lord, but, uh, but it also is kind of going theologically against what is being established in the temple as well. Um, which we'll talk a little bit more about when Solomon builds the temple. Uh, we still got about 40 years before we get there, but, uh, but yeah, good question. Any others? Blake? Is that good? Uh, nope. That's it. Okay. Um, all right. So coming, bringing it all kind of, uh, to fruition here, uh, RC Sproul, I think has probably the best of all quotes about Uzzah. And I, I want you to be able to read it. Uh, Uzzah believed that mud would desecrate the ark, um, but it's just dirt and water, and it obeys God. Mud is not evil. God's uh, anger was not meant to keep the ark, uh, or his intent was not to keep the ark pure from the earth, but from the dirty touch of human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt. God said, no. (laughs) that's not true. (laughs) So as presumes, it would be better that the ark touches my filthy sinful hand than the earth and it's dirt. And God said, no, that's not true. The earth has not done anything to me. Uh, You have offended me with your sinfulness. And so you're dead. Um, But I think it's also a, 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 the bigger thing of, Hey, three, they're, they're essentially not, they're not adhering to anything. It's sort of the same pattern we see with Samson it wasn't his hair that lost his his strength it was the fact that he his hair was the final straw he had broken all the Nazarite vow up until uh, you know the two two of the Nazarite vows and the last was the hair and so once that was it was a total rebellion against God now uh they know this uh they they do know this because they put the ark in Obed-Edom's house and they find out when the ark is there that um, God is blessing Obed-Edom. And somebody comes and tells David, God is blessing Obed-Edom, which means that God doesn't want to kill us. He wants to uh, bless us. And so, so, um, so th- there's, this, there's this idea that's, that's happening now that, that they're understanding God's true intent is to bless, not destroy his people uh, via the ark. Now, I don't know how Obed-Edom felt about being the guinea pig in this little <laughs> procedure, but regardless, uh, he they found out, look, the Lord wants to bless us and not destroy us. But look at what uh, it says in, in uh, 2 Samuel 6, 12 to 15. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all the things that belong to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those, listen to this, 13, pay really close attention. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might and David was wearing a linen ephod. There, there you go. David is the linen ephod um, that's on him. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Okay, notice verse 13. 
What did they do? It seems that the Kohathites, again, uh, we assume it's the Kohathites that are going to carry this again, but they go down to Obed-Edom's house. And this time, what does it say that they do? In the ESV, it says they bore it. And what that means is they, they carried it. So they didn't put it on an ox cart this time, which tells you that, and they didn't even put it on a new ox cart. <laughs> it tells you that probably they're learning their lesson. And this time the Israelites were sure to carry the ark of God as God had commanded. And what happens then, they carry it six steps, nobody dies, and they go, hot dog, we're in business now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they sacrifice an ox and they're, they're ready to go. And so they're going to carry it in and they're going to bring it into the city of David. And there it is going to dwell for some time until uh, Babylonian captivity. Now, this has this whole thing is bringing uh, the point to bear, I think, that you go back to David fighting the Philistines, getting the Lord's blessing, the Lord breaking out against the Philistines. Then Israel disobeying the Lord and the Lord breaking out against Israel. The people then realizing what's going on, rectifying the situation and obeying the Lord, seeing that he's there to bring them joy and not destruction, gives you this sense in this whole corridor from the middle of five all the way through the middle of six, that in Yahweh's presence, his people should both shudder and dance. There's this, there's this concept going on that Yahweh must be obeyed. He must be obeyed. And if you don't, you should be afraid. But in obedience, there is joy. The, the best part about all of this, though, is that when we get into the New Testament, what we see is that here is the presence of God amongst us. And yet we, through the pagan Gentiles that were around him at the time, we lay our hands on the very presence of God and put him on a cross and kill him. And yet what the Bible reiterates to us over and over again, particularly in Isaiah 53, is that it was God who put him on the cross. God the Father put his own son on the cross. That even though we're there standing behind the ox cart, so to speak, grabbing a hold of the mercy seat, he strikes Jesus dead instead of us. So you cannot, it's impossible to actually read the Bible and understand it and not see that what is happening there in the epitome of the gospel, Christ on the cross, that God is actually taking his wrath and his anger that is kindled toward you and me and placing it squarely on Jesus. You can't see the gospel and understand it rightly and not understand Isaiah 53 saying that it was the Lord's will to crush him. He was pleased to crush him on behalf of his people. There's just no way you can actually read the Bible rightly and not understand that and not see that is happening there. Um, but what a beautiful picture that is because you and I are Uzzah, unclean, filthy pagans reaching out and laying hold of the mercy seat out of disrespect to the Lord. And yet the Lord kindles his anger toward us, just like he does to Uzzah. 
Notice Uzzah's death is a response is a re, is a response to the Lord's anger. The Lord kindles his anger and he kills him. And yet, when we grab the mercy seat, the Lord's anger was kindled and against us, but he took it out on his own son. So, questions, comments, concerns? Michael, I'm struck by um, the when we use the language of, of breaking out and whatnot, that, that could very easily be construed as that God is capricious and unpredictable and he might just break out and destroy everyone. But the, the grace, the graciousness of here, he's given clear steps to this is how, how he has approached. And when those, when those, um, you know, it, it took a lot of faith, for them to, for the Korathites to step back and be like, okay, we're going to try it your way <laughs> and maybe we won't die. Yeah. Um, but that in that, that's faith, you know, and that's, it's not that the old Testament was, was works. And now we're in faith. It's like, no, their faith was expressed in following what he said. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, they get to experience his presence anew because they're they actually listen to his word again. Yeah. And I think it's so also important, Millie, I see your hand. Just one second. Um, I think it's also really important that we see that they don't have it covered. They are not carrying it. They do touch it. Like there, there is a, there's mercy in just the fact that the, the ark made it out of Kiriath Jerem and the people made it out in one piece. There's mercy already be taking place there. And Uzzah is essentially breaking all of them. Right. And, and you're right we don't want to see that as the Lord being capricious and just fickle and whatever, but it's extreme disobedience. So yeah, that doesn't, by the way, the Lord, the Lord's anger being kindled against Uzzah and striking him dead doesn't necessarily equate and don't think of it that way. doesn't equate to, to Uzzah being in hell. All right. That the two are not necessarily related. It, 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 um, so anyway, that that's probably a different topic for another day. But Millie, go ahead. You had a question. Well, what I I perceive is the fact that God is holy. This is his essence. And sin separates us from him. And for us to step forward, I mean, he has given implicit instructions on how this is to be done. He has taught them repeatedly and as to the color of the covering and the amount of covering, there are several layers of covering. And and he has explained to them, I, I am so holy, you can't look at me. You cannot touch me. You cannot. And it is our sin that separates us and prevents us from being able to touch him. Yep. And And that's what, to me, is so glorious that one day, he is going to purify me and present me to his father. And I, I just can't even imagine the joy. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's good. Anybody else? I can only see about five people. So if you have your hand up, (laughs) uh, are you, am I out of sharing? There we go. Now you're, Now I can see more people. There's a lot of people. Hey. <laughs> All right. 
Good deal. Well, I'm going to pray for us then and close us out. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for just an opportunity to open the Bible and to see um, what you are telling us through the men that you inspired to write this down. Um, ah, what a blessing it is to be in, even in this age, to be able to, uh, under the advent of Christ's kingdom uh, being inaugurated, uh, how David himself would have longed to see this day uh, and couldn't. And um, wow, what, a, what an amazing thing that is to know the name Jesus Christ and to know that he saved us on the cross to understand how that came about and um, that we can have salvation in him alone. What a blessing that is to be where we are and uh, see this day. And we long for the day of his return, knowing that just assuredly as he came the first time, he will the second. And we long with Millie uh, for that day uh, to see when uh, Christ comes and, and calls his bride to himself. And um, some, this makes us just long for, that, for a time when that, that will be the case and uh, to see it with our own eyes. When uh, our faith becomes sight, uh, what, a, what a glorious day that's going to be. And I pray that in our hearts, you would give us more and more a desire and a fervency to see that, to long for it, and that it would not obviously result in any kind of disobedience or result in any lethargy or on our part, but quite the opposite, that it would result in work on our part and obedience and and knowing that our labor is not in vain and uh, pray that maybe even through all of this, as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament, that we can take what you have given to us in your word and we can give it to other people, knowing that there is this thing that we're reading and studying is inerrant and infallible. It is your word given to us. And we can take it with confidence and give it to other people, knowing that, that they too can receive salvation in Christ alone. And I pray that you would uh, grow us in that and, and, and allow our hearts to be uh, so ex expanded with the, the good news of the gospel that we can see Christ on the cross and desire desperately to give that to other people who may have never heard or may have heard a thousand times and rejected for bad and for, for bad reasons. I pray that you would help to equip us, train our minds, that we that through all of this, these would be part of the ways that you keep us until the day of Christ. I pray that you would do that in in Jesus' name. Amen.